So I want you to think, um, when was the first time, I don't know, this is like first time, or when are times that you have felt like you've been like free? I'll just put it that way. Free. free, yes. I know you know, like, we live in a free country, we're free to do this, that, and the other, but, like, was there a time where you're, like, you felt a sense of freedom in your life? So left home for the first time. Did anything dawn on you, like, at... You remember, you remember leaving home for the first time? Like, was it, where did, did you travel? Where did you travel? Let's, let's get your life history. So. <laughs> no, so, so when you say left home for the first time, where did you leave to? Got my own apartment, you know what I mean? And I was okay. on my own. It was just, you know, it didn't have the restrictions that I normally had to deal with with mom and dad. And I remember going to the supermarket for the first time to buy my, my stuff. And it was just like, wow, this is awesome, right? <laughs> Okay, all right. Some of you guys can relate, I'm sure. Any other thoughts? Other times of your life? What's that? That's freedom? Oh, man. (laughs) And you have no bars? Sometimes also feels like a prison when you're traveling and you're like, is that the right road? I don't know. I don't have connection. So... You're free to take the wrong road. Being at the ocean. <clears throat> what makes you feel free at the ocean? Okay. So on the beach looking at the water, swimming in the water. Yeah, okay. When I was a kid, I used to ride my ATV in the woods. I felt free. You felt free? Was there a lot of land? Okay. <laughs> How big was the property? I was gonna, I was gonna say. Uh, maybe like twelve acres, but we were connected to some other stuff. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, there's probably you know times like you know I, I can remember like Lionel like thinking certain times like moments when either I was at college was kind of like a first sense of freedom, and then the first time like yeah I packed up my car and I was like at college and I was looking at the fraternity house where I was leaving, and I was like, guess I'm heading to Indiana for my first job, you know? So it was kind of like remembering that. But I think even the other times, like there's times where, yeah, you're traveling or you're, I don't know, there's just a sense of like roads unexplored that, that you get this sense of, of, you know, this idea of, of freedom. So like what, what goes along with that when you kind of like feel free, like... A load or a burden has been lifted. It's a really interesting. What's that? Then reality hits. Yeah. So, yeah, we talked and we talked about that. That was actually last week. Uh, you know, we did uh, kind of a side study on uh, on Matthew 11 and Jesus saying he would he would carry our our burdens when we are weary and heavy laden. Um, but I want us to, you know, to to kind of kind of carry that idea because we're going to get to this this idea of being free um, when we talk about being free in Christ and just what that what that means. But I think sometimes, you know, do you, are you, are you freer as you get older? Um, you know, there are moments where, like, yeah, your f- first college, first job, like certain experiences that you have when you're older, 
that you kind of maybe feel this freedom that you didn't have? I think that's like, I think if you ask a high school student, like, do they feel free? They're like, no. I mean, I have like school from this time to this time and doing all these things. Um, when I look out my window, the great thing about working at a school that has, you know, kindergarten through 12th grade is that you can see the kindergartners like playing out on the turf field behind our, my, uh, my classroom. And the way they play is just like, you know, running after each other or they lay on the ground and they just roll. And I was like, when's the last time that I just rolled? I mean, it just doesn't sound appealing. But I mean, like, you know, they're unencumbered, right? But they're not even thinking about those things. So um, anyway, we'll, we'll circle back to that. So yeah, last week, you know, interestingly, we did talk about, you know, the rest for the weary. Um, and that, you know, Jesus uh, has promised to us, right, um, a peace and a rest for those that are weary and heavy laden that is really better than any vacation um, because that vacation always comes to an end. We, we talked about vacation regret. I'm sure there's a psychological term. I still haven't looked it up. Um, but before that, in our study of the 50 chapters every Christian should know, we looked at Romans 1, and so I think we did four parts on that. And so we looked at Romans 1, and to really see that like when, when a culture rejects God and pursues their own sinful desires, um, that ends up leading to rejecting God, rejecting God's natural order, and then in turn, there is a judgment that comes along with that, um, and that people get deeper and deeper into that judgment until you kind of see the culture have like a look to it. Um, you know, right even in an election cycle, we might be thinking, like, are we headed that way? Um, and there are things that we can definitely point at within our culture. We can look at things that, you know, were worse off at the Roman Empire in the time that Paul was uh, writing this letter. Um, but, nonetheless, while things may seem to get better, things will get worse. And we know that there is a promise of things getting worse, but that chapter will have to wait later. Um, so in between, we're in Romans chapter 8, but in between that, you know, Paul is, again, wanting to go to Rome and wanting to talk to them about, um, you know, make a visit, wanting to encourage them uh, by sharing the gospel with others, but also just spending time with them and then hopefully making his way to Spain. Um, and so as he kind of talks about, you know, not being ashamed of the gospel in chapter 1 and what it looks like when a culture kind of rejects God... We kind of talked right at the end of that, that what sometimes is the response of those when, when you look at like a culture and you say like they're getting deeper and deeper into depravity, there, there then tends to be a, a judgmental side that then we adopt. And we feel like we are judges looking at others and being judgmental. And that's where Paul goes in chapter 2. And he's like, you know, right there in verse 1, he says, you know, those that judge are liable to be judged by the same standard. And so... He kind of then develops that idea of judgment, and as a result of God's judgment of sinners, then, you know, we, again, think that we are a judge, and Paul says, no, 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 you can't be judged because if there's only one judge in this universe. Chapter 3 says you can't judge anyway because you are a sinner and you are guilty, so that seems like a hypocritical place to, to be at. And so Paul just says, we're all in that same camp together. Even though that there are some that are, as a collective group, worse off than we may be, um, we fall under the same condemnation of judgment. And that judgment is justified by the law. 
And so Paul then kind of develops this idea about what the law looks like, and we'll look at that in just a second, you know, or at some point uh, at what he talks about in chapter 2, because there's kind of a relation of what he's talking about in chapter 8. Um, but even though we're all judged, we're all liable for the same judgment, but e- even though we're maybe like light sinners compared to other people, we still are sinners and we still are lawbreakers, and, but God has made a way that we can be made right um, before him, and that is through faith. And so he looks at the life of Abraham and uh, kind of explains that. We'll look at that when we get to Galatians. Um, he makes the same argument, just in a different chapter, and that's the chapter we'll look at to kind of think about what it means to be justified by faith. Uh, and, and then the last kind of several chapters, chapters 5 through 7, Paul explores what this faith you know, means, right? If you have this new life that is brought about by faith, what does that mean? And he says that you are freed from sin, that Jesus overcame the sin that Adam brought with him, um, and the penalties of sin and death that Adam brought. Jesus overcame that. And so we, therefore, are not free to struggle um, you know, in the same way as we did before we were in Christ, but we still struggle nonetheless. And that's kind of where he, like, leaves it in the end of chapter 7. And we'll, we'll look at that in, uh, in just a second. Um, so, uh, so, reading the first few verses of chapter 8, just to kind of give some context, <clears throat> we read uh, verse 1 of chapter 8 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Uh, when Paul, you know, there's a lot of places in Romans, and this is, you know, also one of those places where when Paul's talking, um, there's a lot of depth to what Paul is saying. Um, I, uh, the the um, London pastor, uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I think he spent his entire lifetime, it was about 40 years, preaching through the book of Romans. Um, so that's, that's in depth, right? <laughs> and so that's where you could go. Like every little thing can go into the depths of what Paul is saying. So we're not going to go as deep as D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. We don't have 40 years um, who knows? Maybe I do, but I don't think you have 40 years to, to, to sit under that. Um, and so we want to kind of see, like, what are the big things that Paul is trying to say? So when he says, there is therefore now no condemnation, right? That's kind of like answering something that he is explaining before. And so we kind of have to think about, like, what is the context of what Paul is saying, Right. What could, it, what could that be, right? The therefore there is now no condemnation. There's a couple ways to look at it. Like immediately in the context, if you look back, let's say at verse 22 of chapter 7, you know, Paul is talking about um, while Jesus did what Adam, you know, I guess did away with what Adam brought in, right? Adam sinning brought not only with the first sin, sin enveloping all of us 
And that is kind of like the lens that we see everything through. And the ultimate end of sin is death. We'll get to that a little bit later. Um, but that's what he was talking about, about earlier, that Jesus overcame that. And so he is the last Adam to throw away what the first Adam did. But nonetheless, even though that reality has happened, Paul like talks about struggling in his sin. And so in verse 22, I mean, he kind of talks about it a little bit further than that, but just to get the, the very end, he says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. And again, for several chapters, Paul is like saying, specifically for the Jews who revere the law, and again, we'll talk about this a little bit in just a second, what that idea of law means, um, that the law is not just, well, what, what about all the history of, you know, Judaism up to this point? Is it just, do we do away with it? I mean, Jesus didn't come right to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. So does that mean the law is just thrown away? And Paul says, no, but the law does something. Um, and the law is actually good. So he says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So it's kind of got this like dichotomy that's happening within each one of us that we see manifest in Paul, right? This desire to do something, but then this like desire to do something else, this desire to do good inside of us, but then this desire that pulls us to do something that is sinful. So is it because of that like waging, you know, that dichotomy, that that struggle that there is no condemnation in Jesus Christ that doesn't quite make sense. But Paul is kind of, again, in the context of what he's talking about, we'll see how like there is a connection to that struggle that, that he makes. But you've got to go a little bit further back, and that is to uh, verse 6 in chapter 7. And when you read verse 6, it says, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And so he kind of introduces this idea about the Spirit. And up to this point, the Spirit has only been mentioned once in, you know, and it's in chapter 1, the very beginning, I think it's like in verse 4, that the Spirit has only been mentioned once up in the first several chapters, seven chapters. When we get to chapter 8, he talks about the Spirit over 20 times. And so this idea that Paul is talking about gets kind of introduced. And so now with chapter 8, he's going to go into depth, you know, as he talks about the struggle between the, the law and what's written and what we know is right and wrong, and then how we ought to behave and how we ought to live. And that's really the point that I want us to, like, emphasize and kind of grasp and, and lay hold of, you know, as we, however long it's going to take us to get through this, you know, two to three weeks, perhaps. And... Um, just to kind of make sure that we understand as people, we live in the flesh, but there's something much more, uh, that is much greater about who we are when we are in Christ. There is a part of us, while we, everyone might say that they are spiritual, we are spirit-filled. So what does that look like? What does that mean? And that's why, you know, we're looking at chapter 8 and what Paul wants us to think about, right? So there is this new way of the spirit 
not in the old way of the written code. Verse 1 of chapter 8, Therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, let's talk about what it means to be condemned. What's that idea of condemnation mean? If you hear the term condemnation, it's not usually one that like we, we kind of think about, but what does condemnation mean? What's that? Yeah, it's a declaration of punishment, right? That somebody has been found guilty and that there is a punishment, so this person is condemned to a sentence of something. You know, in a judicial sense, we think about it in that way. And so, um, if you think about uh, a building, right? That's usually maybe how we think if something is condemned. You can say a person might be condemned and they're incarcerated as a result of that. If a building is condemned, why, why is a building condemned? Yeah, so it's, it's uninhabitable for a particular reason because it's not safe. Yeah, and the idea is that it's unfit for the use that it was intended for. And so if a building is condemned, right, it either needs to be torn, torn down and start over or it needs to be refurbished. And so it is now safe and inhabitable. And that's kind of the idea, right? If somebody, you know, if, if there is a punishment that is levied against somebody, right, that they are un fit, unqualified to be a part of the larger society, right? If somebody is incarcerated, then there is this condemnation that has been placed on them because there has been a a guilty verdict laid upon them, and then the sentence is supposed to be commensurate with either the punishment, you know, the, the crime that they had done, or like what's the whole purpose of the judicial system? What's the purpose of incarcerating people? There's, pro- there's two purposes of it. Actually, there's probably more. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, so I haven't really thought about this. So, okay, so one is, one is punishment. So why incarcerate somebody? I guess so there's the idea of punishment in the sense of, right, if somebody's incarcerated, they can think about what they've done. Um, what else? So I guess we got more than a couple. So what else? What's that? You're protecting society, right? So to keep, keep people, right, bad people away, right? So there's one for the larger group that is protected from the person that's incarcerated. But the person that's incarcerated, what's the hope for them? And, depend, and it depend. What's that? In rare cases, rehabilitation, right? Because, I mean, that's always, even in our judicial system, like there's always, we always have hope, right? You know, because if you thought, like, you, you know, you, you, you stole a television, right, you're not going to get a life sentence because, one, we say that the punishment needs to fit the crime. But if it's like, he's just going to steal more televisions, you know, and he's never going to, you know, learn from his mistakes, then um, we should just keep him incarcerated, you know, forever, right, to protect all of our televisions. So, but there's the hope, right, that... Um, the person would be rehabilitated. And so when we think about this idea of condemnation, right, this person's unfit for society, but there's always this hope uh, that a person would be rehabilitated. And so um, when we get back to kind of like our, our, our thought you know, here, what is our punishment as sinners? Death. 
And so there is no like, well, you had a light sin. I mean, in, in our judicial system, it's that way. But in God's judicial system, it is. Like, there is no rehabilitation. There is, if you are a sinner, you will continue to sin. When we look at Romans chapter 1, it shouldn't be a surprise that that's, you know, when God like lifts his restraint, it is only because of God's restraint that society isn't as bad as it could be. And there are other reasons for that. Because of um, the, the framework of God seen in creation and known inside of each person is that restraint. Um, but when God dims that light, allows that to be suppressed, then we see kind of how it manifests. Because sinners will always sin. And then the end result of sin is death. Paul will get to that a little bit later. One lexicon translates Romans 8.1 this way, there now is no death sentence for those who are in Christ Jesus. I feel like that kind of like paints a picture, you know, much clearer for us when we get to chapter 8. Paul has this struggle with the sin, but because the, the, the law has now been done away with and we have the, the Spirit, there is no, um, there is no, while we are guilty, there is no then um, description or condemnation. There is no death sentence that is laid upon us in Christ Jesus. And I think like right there, you could just kind of pause and be like, wow, like that sounds pretty amazing. Like, so why is that kind of a breath of fresh air when we hear that? We can't stop from screwing up. Have we tried? That what? Yeah, and I know, you know, and, and it's almost like we beat ourselves up, right, and we should, <clears throat> over our sins, in some measure, uh, not fully because of what Christ has done, but there is the shame that comes along with sin, and we look at Paul and think like, I mean, that guy, <laughs> I mean, he's, he's like much, much more of a Christian than I am, and he yet has these same struggles because of the reality of the world that we live in. And so because we mess up, because we, yeah, like, because we can't, you know, figure it out, maybe, maybe it's just, you know, maybe with time, maybe with age, we'll figure it out. Maybe with technological advancements, we'll figure it out. And in God's timing, right, it was thousands of years until um, Jesus came that they had tried different ways and in different uh you know, different areas, different, you know, different rulers, and they still couldn't get it right. And so, this no condemnation, right, then Paul goes to, has, has been given to us, there is no death punishment um, because of a few reasons. And he uses, you know, the, the word for, right? Why is there no condemnation? Uh, the first one, what does he say in verse 2? There's no punishment of death because you are free, right? 
So if you're free, then you're not incarcerated. You haven't been, been given a condemnation. This idea that you are freed is liberated or released. Right? So there is no punishment. And so then the idea, then, then the question is, well, free from what? What have we been freed from? Well, again, going back to verse 6 in chapter 7, Paul says that we are freed from the law of sin and death. I think maybe a better way to think about that is the law that leads to sin and death. And it's not the law that is responsible for that. It's the law that gives us the understanding that, you know, there is a rule or a law. We have violated that rule or law, so there has to come with it a punishment for violating a rule or law. So that violation, that sin, ends up with death. And so, how has that happened? Well, it's because he's replaced that law, right, with what he says, the spirit of life. So I want us to kind of look back at Romans chapter 2 and kind of see what Paul is, is saying, right? He replaced the law with the spirit of life. And Paul uses the term law in like kind of different ways, but this, this idea of spirit of life, and we kind of, kind of look back to what he's talking about or he's thinking about, you know, <clears throat> probably when he's, you know, writing this a little bit earlier in Romans chapter 2. Let's start in verse 6. Or again, remember as a, as a response and people saying, well, you know, those who judge are liable to judgment. Right? Verse, verse 6 says, He, meaning God, will render to each one according to his works. Right? So violate the law and you will um, receive the punishment according to what you've done. Verse 7 to those who, by patience and well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality, God's judgment, uh, for all who have sinned without this law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, we're thinking like in the idea of the Mosaic law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So Paul here goes into a little bit more detail about like what that means when you do right or do wrong. And then he, in chapter 3, he just says, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all, all of us are sinners. There is not one righteous, no, not one. And he continues kind of that language as he makes the point that we're all in this together, right? Whether we have a written law um, that was given to Moses, right, that was uh, handed down, um, you know, on a tablet of stone and passed down through generations, you know, again, by God himself. But even if you don't have that law given by God himself, God has given each one of us a law that we've already talked about that comes either through the created order or through our conscience. 
And so no one is without, uh, no one has an excuse. Everyone is without an excuse. And so this law, right, that has been done away with, right, we have now been given this law of the Spirit. It's sometimes called the law of Christ, or as Paul says here in, uh, back in Romans, right, the Spirit of life. Because the law, as good as it is, meaning it tells you what to do in order to live a righteous life, in order to live a life that is uh, glorifying of God, that we also know that to not measure up to that standard means that we've fallen short, that we have been guilty, and that we have sinned. And in chapter 2 he says, wrath and fury of God await for those that have broken the law. Again, bad news, condemnation, death judgment, punishment. But for those who are in Christ, and we'll get to this a little bit more, we have the spirit of life. So what did he do? So again, Paul's kind of summarizing, you know, what he did. What does verse 3 say? How did he accomplish this spirit of life that is given each one of us? Okay, and so he says, right, he, he basically did something that we couldn't do, right? And we know that we kind of talked about that just a moment ago, that we can't um, accomplish the law. We can't do, like, no one. There's no, you know, I mean, we can always look at other people and be like, you know, that person's like super patient. But even like the most kind, loving, patient, gentle person, right, they would all admit they had their bad days. You know, you know that person where you're like, have you ever been, you know, upset? And they're like, of course I've been upset. I just don't get upset in front of you or you don't see that, right? Because um, that's our mask that we hide. And so that's, the, that's kind of like the idea, right, that, that we can't do it ourselves. And we've seen all through the history of Israel and all through the history of those that were before Israel and those that are after the nation of Israel that... Um, they just couldn't do it. And so they had a whole lot of documentation, a whole lot of times to try to get it right, and a whole lot of futility to make the point that, you know, well, maybe if we just try this, maybe we do it this way. Well, what about that, right? All of those things failed, and we just come to the conclusion that there is nothing that can be done. We'll all fall short, right? So God did what we couldn't do. What did he do? He sent Jesus. And so what did Jesus do in regards to the law? So we know the ultimate, right, that he was sacrificed on the cross. But what did he do in regards to, like, the law itself? Again, the law is, like, doing, you know. Yeah, kept it and kept it in which way? Perfectly, right? So he fulfilled the law, right, in every aspect of the law. And even, like, help people understand the law in a way that the lawyers themselves, the scribes and the Pharisees, thought they knew it, but they just didn't, right? And so he beat all these sinful failures, these desires, the failures that we've had, right? The things that Paul echoed in chapter 7, he was tempted in every way, but he remained unstained. And so Paul says that he condemned sin in the flesh, right? He came with the same fleshly 
temptations that we have of being tired and hungry and, you know, the things that we just, you know, there's that, there's that term like, I'm just hangry, right? So it's like a justification, like, it's okay to be angry as long as you're hungry, right? Um, we get it, you know, we get a little cranky when we don't have our food or chemical imbalances, whatever it is, you know, that we want to, like, justify it, but it's wrong, right? You snap at somebody, you're like, yeah, I shouldn't have done that. You know, you might say, I'm sorry, I was hungry, and you're like, well, I guess that, you know, it's okay for calling me what you called me or cutting me off, (laughs) Uh, endangering my life. But, right, Jesus experienced all those things. I mean, crowds pressing in on him. I mean, the, the pressures that he would have felt, even understanding, like, again, what the Father had laid on him, and he never, like, blew it. Like, he never lost his temper, right? The only time, like, he, he quote-unquote, like, seemed upset, right, was when he, he overturned the tables in the temple, right? Just because it was like, you're making my father's house, you know, into a den. Like, I, I could talk to you all I want, but I'm going to do something about it. And so, uh, so we see, like, he was tempted in every way, right? But he did not fail, and so it was sin that he condemned, that he laid a judgment on, right? It's kind of interesting that he used that same word, that condemned, right? It was sin that was given a pronouncement of punishment, and it was sin that was declared unfit, right? Sin is a result of, you know, following our own desires. Jesus allowed us to see there is a way. He's the one that did it. He's the one that, like, the kid that, like, got through the maze, that beat that level of that video game that you're like, no one can beat this. This is too hard. And you're like, he did it. It must be able to happen, right? When someone solves a problem that was never been solved before, it's like, I guess there is a way. I guess there is a solution. Jesus was that solution. He was that ace in the hole that God sent because we couldn't do it, right? Sin clouds our mind. We just can't do it. And, and Jesus coming has declared Sin, though, unfit. It's unfit for someone who is a follower of Christ. And that's what Paul wants us to understand. So that, you know, now we can do it too. And that's where Paul is like wanting us to to grasp and understand. Right? Verse 4 says, In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, right? The whole point, right, not the whole point, but but one of the main reasons that Jesus walked, you know, his 33-ish years on this earth without succumbing to sin was to show us that we can do it too. But we already know that Paul said that we'll still struggle. Right? But we struggle because we're not doing what Jesus showed us that we can do. He wants us to do something that's different. He wants us to not walk in our flesh, but walk in the Spirit. And that's what we need to understand, is that now we are spirit walkers. That's how God wants us to have our pattern of life, is in the Spirit not in the flesh. We have a different pathway that we can walk, right? And so, 
the law, as good as it was, right, as good as it, like, in all these different areas, laid out, like, parameters, and, well, what about this? Yeah, that's, that's sin. Well, what about that? Yeah, that's sin. You know, there's a lot of times that there's gray areas, but there's a lot of black and white. That's right, that's wrong. And the law declared that. So, in the end of, <laughs> you know, it doesn't take long before we're declared a sinner in our lifetime. And so, as good as the law was, it only produced sinners and it only produced death. And God replaced it with a new law, the law of the Spirit for us to walk. And so, we'll talk about that, what that means in in walking in the Spirit, uh, probably next time. Verse 5, we'll keep reading. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, But to set the mind in the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it is not to submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, just, you know, Paul's just kind of putting it in like clear language. The things that he's been alluding to that we've already drawn conclusions on from chapter one and from some of the other chapters as well. Paul is just like laying it bare, right? So, what, what does it say? Those that are in the flesh, like what are they stuck on? Like what is, what like, it's like the needle skips. Like what part is that that keeps repeating and repeating? Like what's all that they can be fixated on? Those that are in the flesh. What's that? Yeah, he says the flesh, you know, and as you think like, well, what does that mean, right? The things of this world, right? The things that are our physical desires and physical natures, but also going beyond that, the things that we promote, the things that we have created, in order to appease those fleshly desires. When you start thinking about, like, how the world has developed, right, um, why people, you know, like, I mean, if you kind of, like, step back, and John wasn't too far, far off when, you know, like he, or even, even, we'll just say, Jesus wasn't far off, like, he didn't worship God or money. When it comes down to, like, what are most of the pursuits in this world based around, I mean, while some things can be altruistic, like, well, I wanted to help people, but I also wanted to help people and make money off of it, right? It's a win-win. You know, we kind of couch it in those terms. But really, right, you know, we live in a world that we have to work and we have to um, pay for certain things. We have to feed ourselves because of our fleshly needs, right? And so that is how our whole system of economy has worked. Some cultures have, like, done away with it and said, like, well, what if we, you know, flip economy, our natural economy on its head of, like, competition and like say everybody does something and we'll divide the spoil. Um, we know like there's frustrations with that. It seems, you know, there's no perfect system. You can say like, well, maybe if we did it this way, then things would be better. No, it doesn't get any better. So that's like if you're in the flesh, that's, that's, that's like what you think about. That's what you desire. That's what you like wrap your world around. That's the world we live in. And it's based on the things that we experience. So we're in this world. We're in a fleshly body, right? Again, like I said, like, we get hungry, we get tired, we need clothes to put on us, we have the same desires where we look at things and we have a standard of beauty where things look a certain way and we like the way things look, we like the way things feel. And you know, So we have like all these things because of this fleshly body and so that's like the way that our world is wrapped up you know, uh, around us and so we can be susceptible when we fall prey into the things that um, cross the line into sinful temptation because when you're just in a world of flesh that only is revolved around the flesh what's the result 
Paul says it's death. We've already talked about that. But what do those who have the law of the Spirit, right? That's, you know, again, using that term, the law of the Spirit, have access to. So those that are in the flesh can only have the flesh. But those who have access to the Spirit, who follow the law of the Spirit, what can we follow? We can follow the Spirit. Uh, it's pretty, you know, it's like pretty, pretty easy there. So it's, we have something more that everyone else doesn't have. We have the ability to tap in to something that goes beyond the flesh that allows us to understand how God desires us to treat one another and how God desires us to love and worship Him, and that is through the Spirit. And what's the result of that pathway? Life and peace. So you've got two clear options. you got death or you got life and peace. Which one would you choose? And it seems so simple, right? But those that even, you know, you would share, right, that following Christ lives, leads to a life of, uh, of life and peace, sometimes, like, that gets muddied, Right? When you talk about life and peace, what does that really mean? Okay. When? Okay. So now and later. And sometimes we kind of want to like, you know, put it in terms of like, you'll get it now, right? But that's a fleshly desire. That's just a, that's just a, um, a blessing that God can give us, one, he can give us peace in the midst of turmoil, so that's something that we can have. As far as life, right, what does that mean? Someone would make it seem like life is in, you know, financial prosperity or, you know, the good life or whatever that means, like, here on earth, but what does life mean in the whole scope of eternity? The promise of, yeah, eternal rest with God, right? And so... We've got this promise of life and peace. And so why is, the, why is the result going back to, so we'll get back to this life and peace thing, but Paul kind of like, you know, wants to hammer home this idea of those that are in the flesh. Why is death the result of, you know, living in the flesh? Paul describes a few reasons for that. One, he says that you're hostile to God. We already looked at that in Romans 1, but he uses terms that, are not like this slippery slope that gets worse and worse. He says, you're hostile to God. You are against God, you know, not just suppressing the truth, which sounds like softer terms. He says, you're against God. In other places, he would say, you are at enmity, or you are God's enemy. You can't please God. You could try all you want, but if you're in the flesh, that's all you know how to do, and so you have no ability to please God, right? You're just kind of, Speaking out both sides of your mouth. Like, God knows the heart, and the heart isn't reflective of loving and and desiring to worship Him. Right? Your motives are always corrupt. We know that we're weak. We know that we fail, and the law points that out to us. And so, we need help. And so, what did God do? Jesus said, right, when I, I have to go away... 
But when I go, what am I, who am I going to send? Right? The Spirit. I use the term as the advocate or the helper, which is many translators say, right? Because we need help. And so Jesus says, I'm not just leaving you with, like, the law. I'm not just leaving you with the fact that, like, my death on the cross is enough. We'll talk about that another time. Is payment for sin. What I'm leaving you also, right, is somebody that can help you because you are here. I'm going away, but you are here. And I will help you, though, access the Spirit. You don't have to live a life in the flesh. You can live a life in the Spirit. Verse 9. So Paul now turns to that. He says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. And that's huge, right? Verse you know, 8, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, right? That's kind of like a big... Should be like amplified, all caps, like, you know, exclamation point, however you make text louder. I guess all caps, right? You know, you're screaming at me, Paul. You, however, you're not in the flesh, but you're in the spirit. So why do we forget, you know, we've kind of already talked about it. Why sometimes do we forget that we are spirit filled, right? That we have the spirit residing within us. Because we screw up so much, right? That's one thing, right? When our sin is amplified, the spirit is diminished. But again, we live in a culture, we live in bodies that are always constantly attending to our needs and to what others' needs are. And so sometimes it's we um, forget, not that like, oh yeah, I forgot, but it's like, you know, did you eat today? Like, I don't know, I guess I worked through lunch. Like, I forgot to eat lunch, you know. It's like, you just, your mind does not attend to such things. And that's what Paul is like saying. You, however, you have the Spirit within you. I mean, I, I have the Spirit within me, and I screw up. I just said that, right? I, there's all these things that I want to do, but then I can't do them, and there's this battle within me. And Paul says that he, you know, would forget that reality. And so he's laying that on the Romans, like you have the Spirit, this kind of big reminder. And he tells you, like, how do you have access to walk in the Spirit? What does he say? What qualifies you to be able to have access to walking in the Spirit? The Spirit dwells within you, right? You have the Spirit of God. I mean, that's the qualification. Can you understand Scripture fully? Well, it depends. Do you have the Spirit of God? Can you truly know how to like love someone or forgive someone? Well, do you know what love is and what it means to be forgiven? That's only if you have the Spirit of God. Like God has to open up your eyes. Otherwise, you will respond in the flesh. And it may sound similar, right? Because God's consciousness resides within all, all of us. 
but it's not true access to the Spirit. And if you don't belong to Christ, you are cut off. And so, what benefits are given if you walk in the Spirit? Well, the first one he says is that you belong to God, right? I think that's a huge thing. In this world, like, that's a part of, except for some, you know, uh, outliers, we live in community. We want to belong. You know, my son and I were um, uh, driving back from his wrestling meet and listening to this program on the radio, if you guys heard it, um, happened to be at the same time. The, uh, they were talking about this, uh, this um, I guess, neurologist, somebody you know, who scans the brain. From a biological standpoint, there is a sense that we all want to be in sync with one another. And they do all these like, studies, they're like, isn't that amazing? You know, either with their conclusion is how we evolved that way, or like, yeah, how does that happen? I mean, it's, that is amazing, but that's beside the point. But... If you look at different studies, like we, we want to belong to one another. We talked about studies that you can do brain scans of people that, you know, like the idea of opposites attract. But those that have more things in common um, tend to have longer marriages. You're like, wow, that sounds radical. Um, your friends, like the people you like to be with, have similar, like when they watch different, uh, I think they, they watch different films, they have the same, like stimuli, like they like to be together. It's like, Easy to be with one another, but also being with other people who are not like you kind of sharpens you and strengthens you. And as they're talking about these things about like the commonalities that we have uh, with one another, but also being strengthened by our differences, uh, I was like, that's like a beautiful picture of the church and how God had, <laughs> you know, had set this up in a way that just, you know, is confirmed by these scientists who are studying these random things about how we like to be together. And there's one thing like uh, when people like, applaud and there's, there's other random studies that are really interesting um, that uh, when people applaud, you know, they'll, they'll applaud after a show and they'll kind of be out of sync. But then eventually if it goes long enough, like we just like to start clapping together. And there's something like a bunch of random people in the room together can, can like to clap with one another. Why is that? Because we like to belong. Like we like to be a part of the group. We like to like connect with one another and if we are in Christ, right, we have belonging to God. That is how we belong with one another, right? We have different football teams that we cheer for, and we have, you know, different uh, desires, like food and whatever it is, backgrounds, different plans. Some are extroverts, some are introverts. You know, we're different, but we are connected, right, because we belong to Christ and the family of God. And that's what Paul identifies that. You know, 2,000 years ago, before any brain scans or studies, that that is something that what the Spirit gives us is a belonging to God. We also see that the Spirit gives life, right? So we already talked about, like, what does that mean when the Spirit gives life? Well, one is life means no death. So we looked at that when we looked at 1 Corinthians 15 and the resurrection, but not only just that, there is also this idea that there is a better quality of life. Well, that's not a promise or a guarantee necessarily like your life will be better in uh, superficial worldly terms. But Jesus said in John 10.10, 10, right, that I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I think it's really interesting that in the context, 
It's in the thief, right? The beginning of verse 10 says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Right? That's like what living in the flesh gets you. (laughs) I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And so it's this life, right, here and now on this earth with me and then even beyond after this life, which is smaller in the whole scheme of eternity. And finally, not only that, the Spirit, of, the Spirit of God dwells in you. It's immediate and accessible. Right now, right here, we have the Spirit of God within us. Right? This is who we are. If we are in Christ, we have immediate access to the Spirit. And so we really should embrace that fact, right? And then also, not only like embrace like what God has done for us, but also see the world like in light of that reality, right? We have belonging. We have freedom. We go back to this idea of, of freedom within the law. We have been set free. There is no condemnation of death that is upon us. We don't have to worry about what happens when we die or after we leave this world. We know But then when we look at others who don't have think the same way, who are not in Christ, we understand why they behave that way. And also we're going to look at this, you know, next week, like what are the implications of this about how we live, you know, in this world? That's kind of the more important thing, but I wanted to set the stage and kind of lay out like the foundation for what we're thinking of and what we have access to. But when others, you know, don't act in a way that is glorifying to God, we understand why, right? There is a death sentence over, over them. Whether they acknowledge it or not, they understand that it is true, that there is guilt and, of, of, uh, and shame associated with sinning. I mean, and they can explain away a whole bunch of other sins, but each one of us has, you know, sins that we look at and understand, right, that they are worthy of condemnation. And so that hangs over <laughs> over others. And so even, you know, maybe if we're thinking about, like, as a result of, like, certain referendums or, you know, even certain, uh, you know, people being put in office in elections, like, you know, where's the world going? Like, we understand where the world is going when there's a world that is not embracing who God is. But that's because, you know, people are living in fear, living in um, this light of condemnation. But we shouldn't, right? Because we have the Spirit and because we have been given this freedom. And like I said, we'll look at what what all that means a little bit more when we come back to the next verses because Paul wants us to understand that especially as he, you know, as he builds confidence at the end of chapter 8, um, and then what that means going into to the next few chapters, and the judgment that lays upon his brothers, uh, his, his fellow Jewish brothers. But that'll come a little bit later. All right, any uh, final thoughts, questions, concerns, comments? Yes. Yeah, and uh, my wife's not here. 
but she's, um, I don't know where she went, she escaped, but anyway, um, but, you know, she'll say something, you know, I don't know how many, it's happened more than once, where I'll be like talking about something, and she's like, did you pray about it? I'm like, no, you know, like, like, that's the obvious thing that I should do, but I mean, you know, that's why also God has put us in, like, community with one another, because as we forget, you know, others have not, and so that's where we are strengthened in uh, together, but yeah, as we fall short of those things, God uses others to help remind us and pull us back, so anyway, that's good. Yeah, and all this is, you know, pretty, pretty uh, I would say, basic or foundational, but extremely important, extremely uh, helpful to remind us of, and like I said, we'll get a little bit deeper into the implications of this uh, next, next time. Actually, not next week, but the week after, I'll be out of town, so I think Tim is filling in. He's not here, but he said he would, so um, anyway, so the weekend before Thanksgiving, right? Correct. I assume we are, unless we hear otherwise. So, all right. Well, you're dismissed.